Great to see the, the last art aficionado standing after art fair week. <laughs> At least this evening, we offer, I think, the opposite of an art fair. It's a, uh, a small number of shows looked at with intensity and focus rather than the opposite. So, welcome and thank you for supporting us. Um, just to let you all know, so I don't forget the most important thing right at the end. We're all invited for a drink over the road at the gallery at Grand Army Plaza, one gap. Um, it's the Richard Meyer White Building that you see just on the other side of Eastern Parkway. And the art committee of one Grand Army Plaza are very generous supporters of the review panel and our critical and our programming. Uh, and Please join us there for a nibble and a, a, a swishing down of the final comments and pleasant way to round off the evening. So, who is here at the review panel for the first time? Excellent, wonderful, lovely to see you for your benefit and just to uh, refresh the memories of those who are um, more regular supporters, attendees. What we're doing is we're, we've been to see five exhibitions around Greater New York. Uh, we are going to look at some beautifully made video presentations of those shows with our new videographer, Paul Gisbrecht. We are going to discuss those shows one after the other, and we'll take a break about halfway through. It's hard to be exactly halfway through when you have five shows, but um, after the first three shows, we'll take a break uh, and invite comments and participation from you, the audience, uh, get your input on what we've been looking at. Diversify the opinion. Lovely. Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, this evening's panel, all of whom are stalwarts, all of whom have been on the panel at least three times. Um, in the history of the review panel, now in its 12th year, there have only been two occasions in which a baby has been held in its father's arms in the back of the room. And the uh, the mother art critics of those two babies are both on the panel this evening by coincidence it's not not planned um stephanie booman who is uh the author of a fabulous collection of interviews with contemporary artists tell us about that stephanie um yeah it's called new york studio conversations and it was uh, released last year it started in 2013 and between 2013 and 15 i um, interviewed 16 women based in new york and um, these conversations were held in the studio talk about technique philosophy content whatever's on the wall sometimes new work sometimes in progress sometimes um, works that are um, going out for retrospect and yeah, they're spontaneous and um, it's uh, now the first book of a series. I'm working on a Berlin-based book that's coming out this summer. Fantastic. You'll be the, the David Sylvester of your generation <laughs> of, um, as an art interviewer, artist interviewer. And Stephanie has uh, curated many exhibitions and is a prolific writer and sometime contributor indeed to artcritical.com. Um, and uh, Eva? is a professor at, Eva Diaz is professor of art history at Pratt Institute, of which um, Stephanie Booman is a graduate. I don't know if you, were, was she in your seminars? 
but perhaps before your <laughs> perhaps before your time. Um, so I believe you're on sabbatical now. Are you researching something of great excitement? I've, I hear you've been doing some surfing in Hawaii, but that's presumably not related to your research. Uh, yeah, I'm working on a book about the legacy of the architect Buckminster Fuller in contemporary art. So at present, I'm writing a chapter about space exploration and the way in which artists today grapple with the end of the national space programs in, in essence and the privatization of space and issues of surveillance um, and satellites. And so it's been a really fun project to work on. It's an extension of a book I published last year, uh, A History of Black Mountain College. And so thinking about Buckminster Fuller became imperative as my antipathy to the man at moments. <laughs> Um, was often countered with artists that I would run into just gushing about Bucky and young artists, not merely people that you know either went to his seminars in the 60s or 70s, but people who are influenced by his work today. So there's various chapters that vector through his, um, his projects and then bring them into the present. Fantastic. And I discovered in the green room a commonality of uh, Californian upbringing of, of Eva and uh, Peter Plagans, our final guest. Peter is a critic on the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he has a distinguished history of uh, arts journalism, including many years at Newsweek. And he's the author of books um, on the Californian scene and um, on Bruce Nauman. Are you working on a new one? No books. No more books. You're done with books. <laughs> That's very ecologically sound, I think. I have a similar policy, not, not watching my carbon footprint by not writing books. Yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Now, the great advantage of these swivel chairs, panelists, is that we can just <coughs> do a, a 180 degrees and we can enjoy the videos with the audience as we're ready for video number one. This is Berlin-born, LA-based Uta Bart's 10th exhibition with Tanya Banakdar, and she's showing work from two series, In the Light and Shadow of Mirandi and Untitled 2017. She's fascinated with what she refers to as Mirandi's relentless repetition of the same subject matter in order to talk about composition and painting itself. I want the image to be deferred. I want to draw with light the refraction of light as it moves through glass and liquids, to draw with shadow, and again, to use light as the subject in and of itself. The eccentric shapes of these photographs and the attention to their edges result from an unusual procedure that entails parallax distortion. She shoots her subject from extreme angles and then restores a frontal view after the fact. Camera-based work is an extension of Bart's training and interest in painting and her explorations of phenomena of perception. In a 2012 Bomb magazine conversation with Sabine Mirles, Bart explained how she initially took photographs as an aid to painting, but found increasingly that the photos were the more engaging works. I remember a teacher talking about the difference of making an engaging photograph of an ordinary thing versus making an ordinary photograph of an engaging thing. So early on I started pointing my camera at the incidental, the ordinary and the insignificant information that surrounds us but that we pass by without noticing every day. 
the series of the simple, whitewashed exterior walls of her studio under varying atmospheric conditions exemplifies this interest. Magdalene Wong, who was born in Hong Kong in 1981, studied at MICA in Baltimore and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Her exhibition at Fresh Window in Bushwick, Invented Landscape, results from a residency in Iceland in 2016. The installation comprises three works, a large projection filling one wall of a frozen lake in the town where the residency was held, Husavik. Inset within the projection, a flat-screen video made up of edited clips of sci-fi movies filmed amidst the dramatic volcanic landscapes of Iceland, with white orbs of light covering up the figures and rockets in the movies, and a sound piece in a monitor covered by a plastic bag whose otherworldly eerie music derives from recordings inside refrigeration units. The blue fluorescent light that permeates the gallery is also part of the installation. So, the use of photography, video, to capture the extraordinary within the ordinary seems to be a, a common theme of these, these two shows. One of the two shows we're seeing in Bushwick this evening, talking about in Bushwick this evening, and, and Uta Bart at Tanya Bonaktar Gallery. Stephanie, let me let me start with you on on Uta Bart. Mm -hmm. The extreme angles, the parallax that we get um, in the Mirandi series, is that something that's um, that seems incidental, or is that something axiomatic? I mean, how how key is that? It's an unusual format, isn't it? It is an unusual um, format. I thought it's kind of what makes this body of work extremely interesting because it makes for these very um, unique particular shapes. And um, of course, because she's drawing with light, she has to find these very extreme angles to um, uh, capture the light as it's hitting these glass vessels. And so there's, of course, um, some kind of reasoning behind these shapes, but she does come up with this end result that uh, makes for some kind of um, plasticity. They become very object-based. In fact, I think they're about half an inch uh, thick, so there's not a, I don't want to call them sculpture on walls yet, but um, there's a three-dimensionality um, to these works that is a little bit unusual um, for her. And I think it's a very exciting new direction where she's really interfering with the image and kind of um, really creating her own still lives rather than um, just capturing what's there. Yeah. So the extreme objectness of these photographs of still life setups made in homage to, to Mirandi. Um, Peter, do you, do you find that that's um, a convincing point of connection with the Italian master? Short answer, no about Mirandi, but I was interested in what Stephanie just said about the objectness of them, because they have this extremely thin characteristic to the light and the shadow. It, you know, I mean, there's, it's not like paint there. It's almost like there isn't even any developed photography paper mm -hmm. there. It's just 
you know, the image is as two-dimensional as you can get, but then it's on that format within the frame, mm. which I found uh, interesting. I still don't know. I asked around a little bit, but, you know, the shape of the format within the frame had to do, I take it, something with the, you know, with the angles. But no, I suppose, and I don't know uh, how much this has to do with, I'll use the Q word, the quality of the show, as to whether the the reference to Mirandi really sticks or not. With me, it didn't particularly, but, uh, and I'll use the L word, liked those works of art. Right. Working through the alphabet of taboo words here, <laughs> but uh, uh, starting off lightly with quality and like, uh, we might get rougher later on, we'll see. Uh, Eva, did, did, you, um, uh, find, did you find yourself responding more to one or other of the bodies of work on show? The, the, there's the, the work upstairs, which is the, the studio wall works, which are um, in a way more traditional, but, but they create, they are a found minimal structure. And then the, the achieved um, unusual structures of the, the parallax images. Yeah, the works downstairs, which are the, um, the Mirandi series, I mean, they're, they're gorgeous. They're just so full of the kind of quality of reflection and the surface in which they're photographed is often reflective, so you have this doubling of the vases and glasses, and it's really lovely, but I didn't feel that I was particularly kind of impassioned by that, by that project. Whereas, strangely, the work upstairs, I felt, maybe because it, it seems to come out of a history of serial practice that um, I know and love, I guess, a very German one, at least in this lineage of someone like Joseph Albers through, like, let's say Peter Dreyer who you know paints the same glass over and over again every day you know in the sense of like how you can attune your perception to subtle changes of a daily light condition so the ones upstairs are the her studio wall and every day it's a photograph of different shadows and patterns that fall on on that and it's just quite beautiful to kind of move through time in that sense. I mean, photography is always a kind of temporal medium, obviously, but in series it works so interestingly to kind of feel yourself attending to detail and to really kind of questioning what makes one work hold your attention at all. Yeah. <laughs> Considering they're, they're so sort of monochromatic seeming and blank, and yet they you know, have this very contingent moment of just looking and, and experiencing. And, and they have a scale that I like, too, whereas the ones downstairs were sort of, you know, kind of traditional sort of, I don't know, like 30 by 40 kind of portable feeling. The other ones enveloped you were much larger. So I had, I felt, I guess I felt drawn to that sequential aspect of the yeah, Untitled I've, series. I find myself also more convinced by what was upstairs. I thought the harmony with the architecture upstairs was obviously uh, <coughs> serendipitous um, with the skylights, some of which were actually reflected in the, um, the framed works. But um, it, it seemed in a way a little more kind of honest. It was just straight up, this is this wall and this is this wall with different lights, different atmospherics. Um, downstairs, seems to be the opposite of Mirandi, flat and tricky. So it 
left me confounded as to why uh, we should it, it how an homage to an artist who is so succulent and straight in a way um, should um, should have that result. But um, Stephanie, what what's your? I think it's um, really about the uh, meditative quality. That's um, the homage to Morandi. Not so much that she has vessels oh. here. It's about yes. the seriality and. Um, that you can take a similar subject and just observe it and study it and create some kind of work with it over a long period of time. And it is different from the body of work upstairs because she is interfering. So she is manipulating and she's very honestly doing so. And the fact that there are these um, extreme shapes make that very evident. Um, so it's a whole different engagement with the work, with the subject. I think it's interesting that uh, uh, Mondrian wasn't mentioned in the press release because you look at these works, you see the stark grit. I mean, that's certainly another reference there, mm. as well as upstairs. Yeah, <laughs> upstairs the Beckers also came to my mind. Herndon Hilda, Hilda, Hilda Becker because of the return. Well, it's it's the opposite. It's returning to um, one location and finding new yield as as far as phenomenological information is concerned so less taxonomy more phenomena but yeah the the shapes make it make them intriguing downstairs in the in the Morandi series they make them intriguing and um one really pays one is forced to pay attention to the support and that i guess is Morandi-ish um but um it, it, could could i get Peter or Ava to, to give a defense of those eccentric shapes? Or did they seem a bit gimmicky, perhaps? <laughs> um, it wasn't so much the shapes, and this is not a negative. I, I thought the, the work downstairs had that uh, untouched by human hands uh, sort of slickness and removed, almost like outer space, you know, something made in mm. the clean room. Yeah. And... It got to me a little in a favorable way because it was so relentless. You know, she didn't make any compromises about that. Right. If I can sneak in a comment about the things in the upstairs, which I preferred. Yes. And I was probably a little suspicious. Don't you question your own, ooh, I really like this. Why? Mm. Because... A, it was in sort of my wheelhouse as a painter. Second, is it? It was that formalism that sort of corrupted. I put that in quotes by a subject matter reference. And the other one was the you're from Southern California stucco. It had stucco and those two wavy little uh, horizontal lines that occurred in different you know uh, everything in there. The only thing, and they did segregate them. Um, <clears throat> The ones with the shadows of the trees on them, I thought, if we're going to get this stripped down and pure, leave those out. Mm. You didn't ask me what should have been left out. But. <laughs> that I, I didn't tell you you shouldn't tell me what should be left no, out. So, so any, any criticism and comment, is, is, this is the place for it. <laughs> Speak now or forever hold your peace, as they say. Yes. Um, um, yeah, I... I, I it may be that the science is just over my head with this parallax, parallax stuff, um, but it, it seemed um, like a little too clever by half. This 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 uh, eccentric shape. I mean, I'm all for eccentric shapes. Why why should photographs always be square or rectangular? You might you might ask. Um, but 
they tend to be. Uh, they they sort of come out, seem to come out the camera that way. Um, <laughs> but of course, we know we're all clever enough to know that that's not the case. It's a it's a conventional, formal decision to make. Ask a question back is to other people. Um, there were a few with a human hand in them, mm -hmm. you know, which changed everything from the still life that there was that good thing, bad thing. Uh, they startled me. Yes. Did, did, were you startled, Stephanie, by the human No, I hand? think it goes uh, further into what I was saying before. It's about the manipulation, and she's very open about that, and it's one way for her to include herself physically in, in the picture to make that evident. I think the one question I would have for her is why are these works still framed in squares? Why, if you have these interesting shapes, do you then bring it into kind of an equalizing format? That was something that, um, you know, piqued my mind. But uh, you were mentioning the Bechers before, and I think uh, Bart is much more of a uh, romantic photographer. It's not really of the school of Gursky or Hofer or, you know, any of these photographers yes. who are just kind of documentary. I mean, even upstairs where you have these subtle changes and shadows, I mean, there's so much uh, lyricism in these photographs. They yes. seem minimalistic at first or formulaic, but then they come kind of to the romantic realm for me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's a kind of... I mean, there's that romance of compulsive repetition, <laughs> the craziness of just taking the same picture, you know, just the motif, I guess. And that's a, such a long history in art. I mean, you can think of Monet and Rouen Cathedral. Haystacks is like, what compels you to look at this thing? Of all of the things that we call art, you sort of inframe this experience and then return to it so relentlessly and that I th for some reason that always gets me I love that kind of craziness <laughs> so that that sense of needing to sort of work through perception at that granular level of looking again again and again and again and it just feels like I as a viewer develop so much knowledge through that <coughs> experience whereas the works downstairs again I felt that the slickness the you know the lush kind of color of it it, it felt like a little bit like advertising in the sense that it's just like everything is kind of popping off, you know, this, the glints of the glass and it's so beautiful with reflections. But on the other hand, I just wasn't feeling that there was a project there that really kind of compelled me to kind of grow, I guess, as a viewer or learn something. So, mm. yeah, so that to me, I felt that upstairs I was just in this kind of world of the, that madness. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, Peter, I think, mentioned sci-fi, and I think that's a good cue to move on to our second show. Um, we're looking at Magdalene Wong, um, her show The Invented Landscape in, uh, uh, at, at uh, Fresh Window Gallery in Bushwick. Um, so we've got three things going on here. We've got the sound, we've got the slow very slow projection of the uh, frozen lake. And then we have um, a rather, rather fun video um, that, that makes the otherworldly sound coming from underneath that plastic band, a uh, plastic bag um, come into its own. Um, a, a doctored uh, selection of movies that use Iceland as its stage set, um, as its setting. Uh, sci-fi movies uh, in which Wong has um, erased or um, the uh, 
superimpose this these orbs of light over either the, the personages or the presumably the spaceships or whatever else is happening in those sci-fi movies. Um, did this seem um, harmonious or or um, how 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 pleased were you, Eva, with the the balance of these three effects, these three pieces within this installation? I liked. I thought it worked well. To I mean, as a kind of installation, it worked well, and those three um, components slotted together nicely. Although, in some sense, I felt that there was um, maybe something that could have been pushed in terms of the sort of sci-fi Iceland theme. Mm. Um, I mean, I immediately thought of Journey to the Center of the Earth, the Jules Verne having, you know, they begin in Iceland and it's kind of the seminal sci-fi, one of the early sci-fi novels, I guess. And, and so there's this kind of rich history of the foreign or the kind of alien terrain, I guess, of Iceland being, you know, kind of compelling to an imagination of some otherworldly site. And I don't know if those three things together captured that. <laughs> or, I mean, obviously so many films have been set there, which is where the center um, film comes from. It's a collage of, of, I think it was like six or eight different films, like Interstellar or Prometheus that use Iceland as Mars or you know other planets, and, and yet somehow it didn't kind of add up to that sort of immense longing mm. that we experienced to sort of be estranged from landscape at the same time that we know that these movies are all filmed on Earth. <laughs> and so, I don't know, there, there was something that kind of didn't quite add up to the... I, I guess it's just hard to quote Hollywood movies because mm. they're so good at what they do in terms of transporting, like, transporting you into this other you know, space. And so it, it, a collage of them with these other components of the installation didn't quite get to that. And, and, and ironic to, get, to give us the, the small relatively small flat screen for what's probably the most <coughs> kind of oceanic of the experiences. Um, maybe that's a factor. Um, uh, Peter, did you find the, of um, intrinsic interest in, in, any of the, in the film, in the, in the video of the... Yes, but again, you know, that was another one where I'm suspicious of my own, oh, this is wonderful because A, I like those kinds of movies, I go to see them, I saw Prometheus. I recognized some locales. Oh, that's where the guy, the the white bald guy, gets undressed and goes into the drink. You know, ah, there it is. Um, the other thing is, I was a little confused though about <clears throat> and something what 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 Ava said. You know, is it separate works or is it an installation? Is it supposed to have an overall you know kind mm. of effect? And I have to say, at first, this is maybe confessing a little stupidity, the the thing in the paper bag that was the ambient sound from freezers, mm-hmm. I thought at first, when I first walked in and were looking at those sci-fi clips, that that was that omnipresent Dolby <laughs> roar that you get in every outer space you know, movie. Mm. And then, oh, well, wait a minute, this is a separate work, and it's like, you know, it's like that. But yeah, I did like that because well, she wasn't catering to me, but you know, it it 
catered to those things that I like. And while I have one opportunity here, I wrote this down that I was going to, because I'll never get to publish this. <laughs> um, I don't do gallery. Um, you know, the movie Arrival, that is the latest mm -hmm. of those kinds of things, and I saw it and I liked it. Yes. And my alternative title for it is Close Encounters with the Tree of Life. That's an okay. inside movie job. Yes, yes. And I thought I'll publish it here because it'll never see the light of day anyplace else. <laughs> Copyright, Peter Plagans, <laughs> 2017. <clears throat> Shared with artcritical.com, that unique insight. Yes. Uh, did, you, did you see this as uh, an installation of three autonomous works, or did you feel it was primarily uh, a singular effect? Mm, not at all. I thought it was one installation, and... Um, you know, I guess if you're someone who reads press releases, you either take them in the beginning or at the end. I always take them at the end. I hate going into a show and trying to read up what it's about if it doesn't really work in itself. I think it's, um, you know, it's not very successful. I think it's a very pleasing, um, for me, installation, even though it's three works, but it's a very pleasing um, exhibi exhibition. It's obviously very smart and a lot of thought has gone through it, especially as you read the press release um, that becomes more evident. But I think the work becomes more interesting as you read the press release, as you see what she's using for all these different ingredients, even the sound that she's using freezers and uh, fridges. That's very interesting in the context of this wintry landscape, mm -hmm. but it didn't come across, I think, while watching it. And one of these uh, um, pet peeves I have with... Um, video installations in general, so if there's not a place to sit and you want me to maybe immerse myself in an environment and lose myself in some visuals, but you have to stand there for 50 minutes, you're not going to ease into it after a while. Your feet hurt or you just become antsy or you start walking around. And I think there's more that can be made with that. Thank you for sharing your pet peeve because I forgot that was one of my pet peeves as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I actually just because it's Bushwick, I sat on the floor and did, didn't think much <laughs> of it. But, but you're quite right. If it had these chairs in it, the, yeah, the exhibition would be exponentially superior. For you'll take forty. Uh, <laughs> uh, you watch it on just, a loop. Yeah, I probably would have spent the whole day there and meditated. Um, it's nice coming from Uta Bart's white walls to the to the white landscape here. Um, they're both. There is something interesting going on between this, these two. I mean, that there's, I mean, no doubt we could find half a dozen or a dozen other exhibitions at the moment in New York that could feed a similar trajectory. But um, very different, obviously, sensibilities, generations, these two artists, but um, finding something otherworldly in what is just around you. With uh, with Wong, it's it's um, a conceptually very layered, isn't it? And um, there is this. It may be a problem. It may not be. But the fact that you may well not intuit what the artist intended without the press release um, perhaps means we have this yardstick to 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 judge and to find wanting um, a, a show that requires that knowledge that it's three pieces. Um, I, I did like the way it had been brought together, though. I thought it the, the sum was greater than the individual parts. But um, the, the, the long, slow installation, uh, the long, slow projection um, was 
very long and very slow <laughs> if one was really going to have to spend 24 hours there to, to actually <laughs> see any change in this glacial landscape, uh, a glacial aesthetic experience, um, one could say. Uh, and then the video, kind of fun, but, but yeah, definitely art about art fun, mm -hmm. right? A sort of um, a little slice of uh, um, Christian Marclay type Pranks, prank with uh, with the movies. Well, if you're going to do an artist, I, I mean, it went all the way. I wondered whether the white orbs, Paul Pfeiffer, taking the right. basketballs out mm -hmm. of his basketball videos, and those are spheres, you know. Yes. I mean, is that is that meant to be got? And one other thing I'll just throw in is the I had a thought about the difference in senses, you know, hearing and seeing. Mm -hmm. You knew where the loop began and end with mm -hmm. the visual, but I would challenge anybody mm -hmm. to say, oh, that's the 12-minute loop of the sound of the freezers. This is where I came mm -hmm. in. Right. You, know, you can't, you don't do that there. Right. One last thing. I wasn't really crazy about putting that dark, sharp rectangle of the flat screen on top of that landscape. Mm -hmm. I wish that could have been resolved another way. Right. Right. And the blue light, that apparently is significant. The the, the blue fluorescent light that we get. Is it to make us feel like we're, perhaps we're inside a freezer? Should have chilled it. <laughs> yes. Chilled, chilled the gallery. <laughs> yes. Combined with no seating and to have the chilled gallery would certainly make for a, a reduced visit. For, <laughs> From me at least. Yeah. Is it a spoiler to say that the other exhibition <coughs> in Bush at Bogart was Blue Light too? Um, no, they, they, they that's uh, well. Uh, if 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 it's the, the whole experience is to be viewed cinematically, yes. Don't don't listen to that. But no, indeed, it, it turns out that Blue Light seems to be the flavor of the month in in Fifty Six Bogart Street, as as the as one of the shows we'll be talking about later this evening. Uh, Wendy Klemperer's. Uh, a piece does indeed use blue light as well. More, more projected blue light. One thing you said, David, made me think of. I mean, the the long temporality of the projection is that it did become wallpaper, um, mm. especially when you put a screen on top of a screen, mm. and there's so much momentum of the image on the small one that, you know, the, does it really <coughs> matter? I, I mean, I had originally mm. thought that it was a slide, or I didn't know it was a video moving in the background at all. So I don't know if that's a really a very important part of the show, which whether or not that each component has to be weighed and mm. its significance equally, I don't know if that's important. But yeah, so it felt like you do your five minutes of the orbs and then in, it's, there's not so much more to kind of hang that show, you know, hang sort of the stake of that show. Well, I think what Stephanie is saying about the press release is key, because when you read the press release, you then savour the fact that it's a video. But while you're standing there looking at it, it may as well not be a video. It could be a still slide. And that's, um, that's always, for me, been you know, one of the, 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 um, uh, the, the faults of much art in the in the postmodern or conceptual era is that uh, if if we if is is that um, yeah you can get what you get 
from it, but to know that there are those extra layers um, and sometimes the extra layers are not merely, not just extra layers, they are, uh, there will be no layers without those extra layers. That um, um, the problem, I guess, it makes one, it ages one a little as a, as a modernist or a formalist or whatever it's being called these days, to, to have a kind of, to have a negative view of program music in art. To, to have to read something to learn how it was made and what it's made of in order to then to get the aesthetic experience seems with visual art to be self-defeating. But um, this is a good example of a show that is a pleasant show and then you read the press release and it becomes an interesting and pleasant show. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, you, you can have, I think, a kind of a of an inviting middle ground, which is you know, who is it, Alfred North Whitehead, the true work of art creates the taste by which it is to be enjoyed, and you could mm. do a riff on that, you know, that the true work of art writes its own mm. press release and informs mm. you. Mm. But it probably is asking too much of a work of art to explain everything and answer all the questions, but I would go so far as to say the work of art should prompt the questions that you then go to the press release and say, well, what was that all about? Mm. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. um, and then and, and obviously a, 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 a matters of degree there. Some of them you really need to read these long backstories and it's a weakness. And some of them are all too obvious and you don't ask any questions. So perhaps it's a good middle ground that Wong um, provides us with an experience, and that when we learn more about her history with that place and um, her inspiration with the video, um, yeah, it gets better. Mm. I really liked, the, just to go back to that format, and you were talking about this, Peter, but I really liked that aspect that you had the rectangular screen and the rectangular projection, because that was the one intuitive place for me. So it made me right away um, think of Malevich's black square on white ground of stark contrasts. You have the contrast between this fictitious landscape against this natural landscape, and that was, for me, the only point of entry to really get into the work without reading up on it. Mm. So that was, for me, maybe the strongest aspect. I, I actually savoured and liked the fact that the the the, the different um, support systems between the difference between projection and um, screen um, was being deployed almost as a symbolic form. Um, I, I think you know with video uh, again probably betray my generation, just call anything moving a video. But um, the, the, the technological advances um, are generating medium specificities, even within what we still perhaps some of us think of as a novel medium of video. And that, um, you know, just the difference between the kind of film being used or the kind of support, um, or whether it's film or not film, um, these might seem technical incidentals but the the, the real artists are, the, are, are going to uh, the real artists never take anything for granted and extract what you extract value where you don't expect it to, to happen so I think that um, I mean I'm not saying she's tacit to Dean but I think her save her 
her formal sensibility of realizing this distinction between projected and flat is is uh, is working to her advantage and to the advantage of this project. Great. Well, let's. Um, uh, I don't know. Is let's let's the audience decide. Um, my my plan was to go straight on to Katerina Grosser, but if that's gonna if you're gonna lose the thoughts you're dying to share on um, uh, Bart and Wong, uh, shall we take a little audience moment now, or shall we wait and look at three shows? Who's who's for now? Anyone got things to say already? Wants to take that little break now? I see you're being a very disciplined audience. You probably want to. <laughs> Want to see one more show, and then you'll then you'll be bursting with comments and thoughts, <laughs> uh, points of view, and um, points of issue. So let's uh, let's take a look at our next video, please, which is of uh, Katerina Grosser at Gagosian. Although this is Katerina Grosser's first solo exhibition in the city, she might be familiar to New Yorkers from her celebrated public commission Beach House from last summer an outdoor painting on a derelict army bathhouse and its surrounding terrain in the Rockaways, Queens, the last stop on the A-train. This prompted Paul Laster, in an interview with Grosser in Time Out, New York, to ask whether the artist thinks of herself as a painter, a sculptor or an installation artist. She's a painter, she told him. I'm interested in the space generated by the painted image and how it can appear in any kind of existing field, be it architecture or the mundane situations of everyday life. For me, painting isn't restricted to a canvas or a wall. The fulsome display on West 24th Street shows she is no stranger to working in two dimensions, however. She favours the spray gun over the brush, working with stenciled shapes that become familiar forms as they recur in different canvases. Her Gagosian show includes large-scale, untitled works from various ongoing series, all made within the last year, and one painted sculpture cast from styrofoam in aluminum. Katerina Grosser was born in Germany in 1961 and currently lives and works in Berlin. Right. Is she going to be one of your interviewees, Stephanie? Yes. She is. In fact, I did meet with her in um, January. Yes. And we talked about this body of work which had um, just left. So she was having the show in New York a week after we met. Right. And so we were um, discussing it without looking at it. And then I got to see the show after. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you better be on your best behavior this evening. We're, <laughs> we're recording this and um, you might have your... Um, your interview cancelled if, if you're too critical, but uh, hopefully you won't feel inhibited um, and you'll say whatever you really feel about this this exhibition. Um, so, Gagosian, vast temple of art, seems to be filled to the rafters with this work, all of which is from, from one year. Um, talk about action painting. It's... Um, uh, prodigious achievement just to just to fill that much canvas with that much color and that much form um, but we do have the notion sometimes that less is more Peter um, 
Yeah. Is this a latter-day abstract? Waiting, I'm waiting. Is this a latter-day abstract expressionist uh, that that is uh, reconnecting us with the wealth spring of creativity, or is this um, something else? Something else, but I won't. You know, don't want to go off the want to go off the deep end. I wasn't <laughs> favorably impressed um, with the show. Um, but no, I, 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 you know, uh, it's sort of between, and I have to confess, I didn't pay that much attention to the sculpture, which looks on second look from the images, I should have gone in that room and spent more time with it. Um, but the paintings are sort of, you know, they're <clears throat> in between that kind of diaphanous lyricism of Helen Frankenthaler and over here on the other end, you kind of, I don't know how, a craggy edginess and a, and a purpose, given a different historical situation, of somebody like Lee Krasner. Mm. And instead of being the best of both worlds, I thought it, for such sizable objects, fell in the crack. Right. Paul Jenkins came to my mind of the. Yes, Paul Jenkins came to mind. I didn't want to say I thought that would be a too recherche shot. For, you know. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, they, they almost. <laughs> but seem, it did occur. Did occur. It did occur to you as well. Okay, so that that's, um, yeah, um, hot work or hot mess, Eva. <laughs> uh, I didn't like the show. I mean, I suppose the first issue is that it's just it's it just feels like money. You know, like these big mm. canvases taking up a lot of space. It goes in, of course, you know, blue chip behemoths, you know. But just I didn't feel like there needed to be this work now. And and I'm not saying this to be snarky, but I immediately thought of that scene from The Big Lebowski where Julianne Moore is like, like painting this expressionist. And just the kind of parody of expressionism that... This, you know, the artist with the spray paints, you know, doing this thing there on these big canvases and then it kind of being ultimately in, like sort of insubstantial as to what that adds up to. So, yes, I, I just, you know, I couldn't attend to it somehow. Right. I was sort of trying to focus on these works and they just, you know, come at you one after the other and, and it's just the dollar sign quality of it. <laughs> Um, you know, and of course, it just once you start thinking about money and you're in Chelsea and you think about that it's like this kind of massive real estate problem of like all these condos that need art. <laughs> like these pieces seem sort of perfect in their kind of, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought of Frankenthaler, I thought of Morris Lewis and this kind of color field meets expression as a moment in the 50s, but I didn't really feel like so many years later it was pushing that to a point that I need to see a rendition of it today. Then again, when she did the piece in Rockway, which we didn't see an image of, so I don't want to talk about it too much, you know, I was, I mean, I live in Rockway and I, you know, was enjoyed sort of having a kind of thing there, you know, that Klaus Biesenbach has been sort of bringing contemporary art to Tilden in particular, um, but I, I didn't think that as a public art installation was particularly amazing. It's sort of mm. pictorializing this former military space as this kind of spray of color and it's it just feels like it's like Instagram candy. Like people just want to take a picture of this bright thing with the dunes around it and what that really means as an intervention was not clear to me. So 
this show as a kind of follow-up to that didn't mm. impress me. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, uh, I, I found it impossible to take them seriously as abstract paintings. They didn't, they didn't come with the authority that they had been um, achieved. They, 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 they felt like a set repertoire of effects. They, it almost felt like the imagery had been phoned in or, or rather had been perhaps photoshopped in. I don't know. It, it just... Um, the, the closest contemporary um, point of comparison would be Carrie Moyer, I think. But the, the, <coughs> the, the sense of awareness of the history of abstraction in Moyer, who creates effects that sometimes don't look dissimilar to um, uh, Grosser's, but the intelligence is palpable in, in Moyer, and, and the effects seem gratuitous to me in Grosser. I would suggest that actually the strongest thing in the gallery was the sculpture, that um, I spent the most time with it, and it's because of its kind of its weirdness and also the the sheer inappropriateness of image on thing that specific it's a sort of between betwixt and between. It's not really sculptural. It's not really painterly, but it's 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 dynamic comes from its its being so in between but um yeah it, it seemed the sculpture also made me think stephanie that that she kind of needs the props that she gets in the these big commissions that she does uh, and the the beach house that that ava was referring to is um you know um the excitement of of pouring paint over a, a building or some rocks um, seems to bring something out as an intervention with a place that um, the, the contained um, by the yard abstraction uh, abstraction by virtue of being non-representational only um, left me very cold but can you convince me of where, <laughs> what I'm missing? Um, well, I couldn't disagree more with what's been said. I think um, Katarina Gross for me is kind of one of the absolute top um, abstract painters out there. And even though she works in installation and uh, you know has done a lot of projects involving three-dimensional sites, she wouldn't um, necessarily see it as such. She kind of um, distinguishes between uh, portable and non-portable surfaces. And in fact, when you look at a lot of her installations and objects, I don't want to call them sculpture, um, they do become flat when you really focus on uh, color and form. And I think that's part of the um, interesting um, vocabulary that she has. It's about color and form. There's really no line there. In fact, the only sense of line you get in these paintings is when there's been so much paint that it starts dripping. So the drips became paint. And I thought um, uh, these are absolutely fantastic in the sense that they are so conscientious of um, the history of abstract art. Um, I went in there, I thought of Mitchell, especially in the room when you go, went straight in and went to the left for some reason, didn't look anything 
like Mitchell, but somehow the um, kind of uh, movement of the semi-horizontal lines um, evoked that. Then I thought of Paul Cutouts. I thought of um, um, so many others. And um, she talks about how she is very conscientious of um, abstract painting and the fact that it's kind of like a river where she just likes to dip her hands in. But yet, there's nobody who works um, quite like her. And you can always tell that it's her work. And it's interesting to try to come up with an answer for why that is, that there's such a unique language there. I mean, she uses uh, golden paints, so many artists do, so she doesn't have a unique palette in that sense. She uses kind of, you know, three available yellows, three available reds from um, kind of their range of mm. colors that many other artists use. Um, is it because she works remotely that she doesn't use, use um, a brush, and so there's kind of a, um, a distance between her surface and her gesture? I don't know, but it's something that I find puzzling and exciting. And another interesting aspect is that for her, these are not large paintings. She um, describes them as body size because she is working on these very, very extensive installations. These are kind of... These are sketches for her, aren't they? I these, mean, they're these, certainly, these are her, as, as I said, um, body size. So these are not uh, large canvases. Uh, I guess everything is relative. They look pretty... Um, Pretty large to me. I mean, they but they but pretty uniform but uniformly sized, right? It's um, almost uh, well. There are two or three formats, but I, uh, it doesn't doesn't feel particularly that um, this image requires this size. It just seemed. Um, I have to be. This is going to sound a bit uncharitable, but it it, it reminds me of some of those um, furniture stores where you can actually order a paint made for you, a painting made for you, it, it just, there, there doesn't seem to be any there there, there doesn't seem to be any um, real volition in the, in the shape vocabulary, it just seems um, kind of phoned in almost. Well, Is that too harsh? Well, I mean, the, this relates to the kind of stencil edge, which I, I liked, and I, I thought of Pollock when he was cutting his paintings and then using those as collage on other paintings um, and the way in which that problem of abstract expressionism of the figure returning was the kind of compelling, you know, sort of tension of, of mm. that early 50s moment. And it's almost like Caterina Gross has resolved it and then it doesn't need to be done anymore. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, okay, there's no more figure ground interest here really and... There's the sort of, of course, that nice, that sort of tension of the biomorphic with de Kooning or Pollock at that moment was really about the legacy of surrealism and what can sort of happen in a painting in terms of representation. And I don't know, it's just this work, it felt like sort of decorative. Like it's like, okay, that yeah. is done and we don't need to do that anymore somehow. So I don't know, you know, if kind of work in color <laughs> and form alone you know, and then adding that kind of baggage of scale and and marketability, like mm. if that takes me somewhere that I I feel compelled by. They they seem to they didn't didn't seem to be aggressively bad. They just weren't very good. And that's that's um, it seems to me that conceptually we've still got some <coughs> space in which an artist can do something interesting by offending taste or being <laughs> grotesque or um, making a mockery of, of uh, the history of abstraction. And she's not doing any of that. So there's nothing, there's nothing kind of iconoclastic about it. It's just um, 
just a bit dreary. Well, I like to pile on as well as the next fellow. Yes. And um, I am a bit of a negativist by temperament. So I would, I would like to narrow in on something because I don't know these issues are relevant. You know, the history of abstraction, what can be done, is there anything new? Mm. Then you get the circle goes out, you talk about Gagosian and his art empire. I mean, there's a, I don't know how many of you were there, but there's a quarterly magazine in that gallery, the Gagosian Quarterly, that tells you what he's showing mm. in, you know, Dubai it seems like 25 different Lost. locations, mm -hmm. okay? And there's that, and there's real estate, and there's marketability, and yada, yada, yada. But back to an issue, I would just like to narrow, and something that Stephanie said, in, you know, is informative to me. I'm going to think about it. I don't know whether it's going to change my opinion substantially, but about the standardization and the available colors in the spray thing, you know, the, the acrylics. Because one of the things that probably bothered me the most is these are for lack of a better term, color paintings. And the colors seem to me particularly characterless. Mm -hmm. Like it's what happens when you give technically proficient students their first shot at a lot of space and a lot of acrylic. This is what you come up with, okay? But now I know maybe there's some little, you know, thing in there about standardization. I don't know whether that well, I won't say I don't know. It doesn't save it for me. Maybe I'll contemplate it later. And one last little little thing is the excess spraying has this little drip that comes mm. down, and I got close and I looked, and I thought the, what's the word I want? It's not opacity, is that it has a physical three dimension, that little drip, mm. and some of the little beads on the end of it even pucker up, you know, ruins the whole infusion of the space and the canvas being the same thing it's an old greenbergian thing about you know color field painting when you stained into the canvas you didn't have that saison problem anymore of this mm. is the surface of the canvas here's the space does it come out you know it's all one and then they had these little materialistic things and i thought nope you know attention to detail and that's maybe an unfair thing to ask in a painting that's 20 feet across. Hmm. Uh, did you, did you uh, follow and can you specifically answer Peter's point there? Um, one thing I would like to say is that um, in regard to color, what's interesting that I found out when I talked to her is that um, she doesn't use color emotionally, symbolically, mm. or atmospherically. It's really about or color. Or formal. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Okay. But um, it's, she uses color abstractly for what it is. Oh. and um, For what it is. It's everything. If you're exactly. <laughs> but, so she doesn't use red because it makes you think of certain things. Oh. You have these clusters of information that you really don't know what to make right. of. And um, it's a little bit how she sees the world and how you know the world is. You have oh. everything at once, the good, the bad, the pleasing, the non-pleasing, the aesthetic, the non-aesthetic. And um, in regard to the drippings, um, you know, I think that was actually a really nice touch that was this kind of um, grit that came to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. I, I mean, uh, obviously I'm not gonna jump to Katarina's defense because I've made my <laughs> position clear, but I'm surprised by the stringent formalism of that 
position, because that surely applies to a, a dis art discourse, a particular moment. And if if do, do we do we get any sense that Grosser is particularly uh, concerned with um, an in a ineluctable flatness and an, an ethereal quality? I, I'd have thought the f the very fact of her coming from uh, installation and having a sculpture present would milit militate against that. Well, we go back to the the kind of the, pre the press release of the work on the wall kind of thing. I mean, right. I noticed it, and it was it was visual, and it disrupted. Now, the argument is, ah, it's intentional. Right. Is not a sufficient defense for me. Uh, well, it, whether it's intentional or I mean, or it bothered not. me. It might not okay. bother other people. But, I but, admit but, that. But let's take it to stage rather. It bothered you, so if it hadn't been there, would she have achieved something that, that she didn't achieve because of the drip? I don't know. Because <laughs> it seems to me, if you're bothered by something, it, 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 it almost sort of philosophically has to be predicated on the fact that it could have been achieved. It could have achieved something if that hadn't bothered you. Yeah, but I can't imagine. The, I can't repaint those paintings in my head right. without the little beads. Maybe a shortcoming right. on my part, but yeah. I mean, are the beads just intrinsically irritating, <laughs> or or do they just? It sounds like you were saying the beads destroyed X, but and I want to know what X is. <sighs> Sorry to be so. <laughs> such a, such yeah, that that fox that uh, 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 all enveloping uh, uh, kind ah, of thing. Right. It it oops. It, I you know it's like uh, if there'd have been a fly speck on one of Uta Bart's you know yes. constructions, right? And she might have said, "Oh, I put one there so it wouldn't be all white." Right. You know, yes. and it, it just did. I admit that it's very subjective. Maybe it doesn't bother anybody else. Maybe nobody else went up that close and said, I wonder what these things look like. Right. Okay. You know. Yeah, I didn't want, want to torture you with that. That's fine. Excellent. <laughs> well, um, audience, you got, we got three shows there and a little bit of, uh, a little of heat generated in that last discussion. Um, are there some grosser fans who want to, to, to back up Stephanie? Uh, and, and, and come to the defense of these paintings and, and have the rest of us on this panel um, go back to Gagosian tomorrow and take a, a fresh look through her eyes and yours. Um, uh, wait, wait for the mic, though. Uh, are we still, do we still have the mic? Oh, are we, are we left on, on our own here in the Brooklyn Public Library. With, um, I, think, I think there should be a mic. Is that Greg? Do you know if the mic is around? Uh, ah, yes. Thank you. Um, cool. It's uh, actually why don't I get some exercise and I can um, cool. Yes, here we are. Thank you, David. It's it's not really a defense. I'm sorry, but it's sort of a defense. Um, I did look at the drips, and I didn't see any purpose in them either. But when I did first walk into the gallery, I didn't. I wanted to like these paintings. I wanted to like the ambition. I wanted to like the scale. I wanted to feel something from them. And I stood in that gallery, and I really tried. And I really, I stood. I'm a painter, and I stood in front of each one of those paintings because I love color, and I love shape, and I love form, and I use stencils. And I'm, I mean, she's right up my alley. And at the end of the day, I just felt 
let down and depressed and emotionally void from standing in there looking at these, what I considered to be very big paintings. And I was trying to give them uh, the benefit of the doubt. And, and it, she just didn't work it for me. She just, it just wasn't, it, I was just not capable of entering into them with any kind of grace or, uh, sorry. <laughs> no, I really, I just, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. Uh, and I, again, I really did appreciate her ambition and her, and her desire to make these massive things. But it, well, it, the desire was realized in the, <laughs> that they were made. Um, but uh, great, thank you. Uh, that, by the way, is C. Michael Norton, whose who's abstract paintings were discussed at the last review panel at the National Academy with Peter, I believe, and Roberta and Christina Key. Um, hi, I wanted to know if you all thought that um, if the paintings were smaller, they could have, this could have helped them. Um, I was, I felt like I kept going back to, to your question of why this now. Uh, and in a way, I felt like they were so big. Um, it was so big to see kind of like the same color palette as say Adrian Genny, you know, or, and, and those drips reminded me a little too much of Joyce Pensato. Um, but so I don't know, I don't know, I felt like I was doing a lot of work to look at more or less a lot of the same kind of colors, a lot of the same, you know, the same sort of um, combinations of colors for a pretty picture and then that same weird drip yellow, black, red for an ugly painting. But I don't know, I wondered if the size could maybe, if you all thought the size could, was, it, was a significant obstacle. I think um, it is important because I didn't really look at this show as a selection of single works as I um, looked at it as kind of an immersive environment. And in fact, she works on many paintings at once. And um, I think it's part of the strength of that show that you go in and you just become enveloped by painting and color and form. And um, I don't think it's meant to just zoom in on one work at the time because there's you know certain stencils that become repeated. There's some variety, but they all kind of build on top of each other. It's more kind of like a musical um, composition in that sense. So I think you need that scale to kind of be immersed by it. That's my answer. But, though I feel that the installation work she does where she will have this kind of continuous flows of streaking of color over sculpture and then sort of piles of what look like pigment because they've been so saturated with color, if it's like sand or some kind of dirt and then the walls and it just becomes this kind of wash all around you. That really feels like immersive. But here the discretion of each object sort of standing as this thing, some of them even did have a kind of form emerging in the sense that there's a kind of ground that the color comes out of. It didn't feel like they really came together as one space. Although, of course, the scale of Gagosian Gallery and the scale of those works does dwarf <laughs> you as a spectator in a sense that it's all around you and vast. But I wondered why that she seems to have some success with those kinds of spraying the paint everywhere thing. Like, what? why do we need to go back to painting as this portable, sellable object of a kind of large scale then. Like what I didn't see in her work that it needed to go 
there. And then that makes me, I don't want to be a cynic, but it makes me just think, well, you make a shitload of money, like, selling out the show, you know? And it's like, it's harder to maybe sell that one immersive installation or something. I don't know. I just didn't, I mean, again, I didn't feel particularly moved as the comment you made. You know, there's a, f a void there, I guess, of what what you experience. And so then what fills that void might be where the cynic does step in and say, well, Great. it's just money. <laughs> Thank you, Ava. Um, yeah. Thanks, David. Um, I wanted to touch on the Magdalene Wong show for a moment. Um, I spent a good amount of time at the opening, you know, at 56 Bogart when the show came up and um, sort of immersed myself in, in the installation or the three pieces, however you want to put it. And um, my first impulse, when I, my first thought when I saw it was this looks like residency art. Those are the kind of thing which somebody goes to Iceland for a month and shoots a bunch of video and whatnot and comes back and presents it as this kind of exoticized landscape. And uh, despite, you know, some more interaction with the work over the course of the evening, I didn't really, I couldn't really shake that feeling at all. I did have a certain empathy for the freezer piece, a certain, you know, I like the humor of it, this idea of having a, you know, a cold space and a warm space and a cold space the needlessness of a freezer in Iceland. But <laughs> beyond the sort of the, the chuckle from that, it, I don't know, it just sort of felt like, you know, fetishizing this kind of landscape. It looks like, looked like every other Icelandic residency art thing that I've seen. And I'd be interested to know somebody who lives, is from Iceland, who grew up in that kind of environment, what, would, what they would think of this sort of work. Right. I, we will have to get Bjork to go and review it for us. <laughs> Right. That's Roman Kalinowski, by the way, who's a regular contributor at Art Critical and one of our editorial team. Yes. Hi. Um, about the Katerina um, exhibition, I tried to, to go and see it without the bias that is in Gogosian, and I feel that um, it needs... Um, you are, I, I was like wanting to see painting in the field. And the first room, uh, I think it works more as a painting, but the large room on the left, I think those paintings really wanted to come out of the frame of the painting. And in that, I would say that they kind of like, um, maybe would have worked better if they were a little smaller, like in the other room. Um, as painting, and it let me um, with the wish to see more of the sculptures in the space. Maybe if there were like a really large sculpture in the very large room, it would have like a more interesting dialogue. Even though I enjoy the work, um, I don't know. Those were my thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing. Cool. Uh, can I say something about the immersive thing? As long as we got back to you know Caterina Grossa. Yes. Yes. Um, it's that, you know, if it was going to be kind of of a piece and perceived that way, you shouldn't have had so much bloody white space in between the paintings, which, you know, gave it that this and, you know, conspicuously spacious installation, which allows you to concentrate on work and you can only do in a, in a place that's as big as Gagosian. But just one little thing is, and I worry about this sometime, you know, too, is that 
the art world being what it is on at ground level, all of us participants in it who aren't collectors and we aren't Gagosian, <clears throat> there's a kind of a negative baggage that comes from the context of that. Everybody says, oh, Gagosian, you know, the art empire. Gagosian, the size of this gallery, the real estate, et cetera, et cetera. And I do it as much as anybody else, but it's probably a little unfair to load the paintings with that. On the other hand, the artist, if she wanted that, she'd have a little more control over the installation. Right. And maybe she did, and maybe it's her choice. We, we pretty much have to assume we are seeing what we're seeing. This is our last comment. Okay. Um, in regards to uh, uh, Gross's paintings, and we all talked about the color, and as a painter who really, really enjoys working with color, I am, uh, I mean, the work didn't appeal to me at all, but um, I am amazed that she can, there's something behind, it makes me think that there's really something important that I'm missing about her color because she's so consistent with it. It's so consistently displeasing, and that amazes <laughs> me. From painting to painting, I feel like there's something really behind it that I just, uh, someday I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna go, oh, I get it. They're beautiful, they're fantastic. You know, it's like when the culture isn't ready yet for some art, you it repulses you, and that makes me really open to I don't know what. All right. That, that, of course, is the, the cardinal virtue of um, repulsion. Um, <laughs> today's assonance, uh, today's dissonance is tomorrow's assonance, as uh, Vasily put it for us. But it occurs to me as a last thought on Katerina Grosser, and this is putting together um, Stephanie's reminding us that she paints multiple works at once, and, and our last comment. Um, thinking about um, the consistent repulsiveness of her colour, is that maybe the, the best way to view this exhibition, and also picking up on Peter and, and Ava's concerns about the, uh, the plutocratic surroundings of, of Gagosian galleries, is, is to think of this, you know, she went and painted on an old army, um, um, an old uh, naval post on the beach at Tilden Park. Maybe this exhibition is, in fact, her intervention in Gagosian Gallery. She's she's taken the ultimate blue chip gallery and used it as the background for one painting. <laughs> um, let me. I wonder what the Ladbrokes odds on that are. The Ladbroke grow, uh, uh, yes, I think that's, if I win, I'll be able to retire, shall we say. <laughs> yes, good. Um, I should have stayed there, the seats are much more comfortable, but let's now look at our third and final video of the evening, which takes us to the work of Wendy Klemperer and Haida Hatri. In her first solo exhibition at Studio 10, sculptor Wendy Klemperer has come up with an installation of suspended cut out heavy paper sculptures of animals in a work titled Salvage What You Can. Klemperer, whose undergraduate degree at Harvard was in biochemistry, is known for ambitious outdoor sighted animal sculptures in which open lattices are scored in metals collected from scrap yards. One small metal work can be seen at the entrance to her show at Studio 10. The paper mobiles 
gently agitated by a rotating fan and dramatically lit by a coloured light projection, are as striking for their shadows and the overlaps of forms as for the individual cutouts. A description published last year of an outdoor public work titled Shadow Migrations in Summit, New Jersey, has bearings on the present show. Klemperer's animal silhouettes are shadows, essences of the worldly form that appear fleeting and at times fleeing. Migration is inherent to both humans and animals, as natural and man-made changes force movement to more hospitable regions. Each animal is a melting pot, bearing countries on its body that are also represented in the US population, a country that has been, and continues to be, built on immigrants. The nations represented are also a record of where that animal once thrived, or at times, where they are most threatened. New York-based German artist Heide Hartree is no stranger to controversy, with bodily-based works that often test boundaries of acceptable taste. A previous photographic project, Not a Rose, constructed flowers from animal innards, for instance. Her latest exhibition at Ubu Gallery and a related book project, Icons in Ash, consists of commissioned portraits of deceased individuals made out of each subject's cremated remains. According to fabled art critic Lucy Lepard, only Hyder Hatchery could have dared to confront and collaborate with eons of belief systems and taboos to produce these evocative portraits of mortality and its mirror image. In this body of work, three different techniques have been used to create slightly different effects. In some, loose ash particles from the person depicted and birch coal and white marble dust are applied in a painstaking mosaic process onto beeswax, bedding the ash gently into the wax. In others, ink drawings or airbrush paintings are either applied directly onto a slightly uneven surface of ashes or else uses their support an emulsion of ashes and binder, giving the portrait the feeling and texture of a fresco mural painting. Um, an eerie, elegiac necropolis feel, perhaps uniting these two last shows we're talking about. Um, Klemperer um, made me think a little bit of... Uh, felt like I was in a cave with the the ominous blue light and the um, uh, the shadow play um, and um, the slight lasco feeling of all those animals bouncing around um, and also the, all the platonic implications of shadows in a cave. Um, Eva, what sort of experience did you have with Wendy Klemperer? Uh, not that good, I guess. <laughs> um, I liked the shadows and I liked the way that, um, I mean, say the kind of Lascaux-like sense of flickering cave, you know, it was there with this kind of, I guess, technological mediation of that kind of almost black light feeling. But I didn't like the objects themselves kind of going, you know, with sort of like this lilting motion of the fan. It seemed like what was much more interesting were the shadows and the objects kind of felt like a little, I mean, they were flimsy, but just sort of flimsily constructed. She, I guess, had used 
found construction materials to make them, but that didn't really come across. It really just felt like, you know, sort of paper project gone excessive somehow. But I did like the way that these different species commingling, you know, sort of like lupine and, you know, these other kinds of things of the wildlife all in this mix. You know, I, I thought that there, there was something that could have been pushed and maybe pushed in absence in the sense that if you got rid of the actual stencils then and maybe did a projection or something of that, maybe, I don't know if some of you have seen the Paul Chan Seven Lights project where things are sort of light moving these objects and animals and things up in this sense of up. I kind of thought of that in the way that light alone can do so much and that the object maybe doesn't need to be there, the silhouette mm-hmm. is good enough. Yes, yes. Um, there's, there's almost a sense perhaps, um, and I'm, I'm not coming down one way or the other on the show, I, I, I think it has qualities that I respond to, but I have some reservations. But there's an interesting, that following on from Caterina Grosser, an artist who seems to have made her medium out of the outdoors and that interaction with nature, that um, maybe Klemperer's, um natural habitat is the wilds, is, is the, I, I know them from reproduction, although I've also seen her studio, which is a big yard in, in Bushwick. But um, that rusted metal needs the, the, the elements to finish it off. And so this is her foray into the, the white cube and a compromise uh, or a new way of thinking through issues was perhaps required. Um, Stephanie, did you find yourself coping with with that uh, issue, or did you? It's hard to say what the issue is. Did you? Did you? How, how did you respond to this show? Um, I agree with Ava. I think um, there's some difficulty in the way it was displayed. Um, I actually took my three-year-old daughter to this show, which was uh, both kind of hmm. sweet and terrifying. Sweet <laughs> because she loved it, but terrifying because she wanted to grab every single one of them. And um, so I think this show appeals to kind of the joy of nature that we all, you know, most of us uh, hopefully share. And mm-hmm. um, there's a playfulness. There's some kind of um, naivete in there. There's some references to Native American art. But if you work with an installation where you try to um, especially use shadows as kind of an integral element, you better make sure this gallery is really dark. And um, there was some kind of light sources coming from different places and weird shadows that were not meant to be um, part of the work. And, um, you know, I was kind of thinking, you know, in contrast, uh, successful examples, think of Kusama's Mirrored Room, for example, where you really get into some kind of world and then you step into her installation, you're really, um, you know, in a different sphere. Here mm-hmm. I felt I was always kind of looking at the gallery, trying to hang some silhouettes and um, do some shadowing. Um, so that part was not successful, but I do think that she can take that a lot further. Um, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of potential there, and there's certainly, you know, something I think a lot of us crave is kind of too you know, step into something that makes you feel really good. Mm, mm. Mm. The, um, the, the, the colder mobile aspect, I think, is, 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 uh, is there, and then having them as, as animals. But I, then these are not, these are not, there is something playful, but this is not um, a childlike, um, or this is not a nursery kind of image, is it, uh, Peter? There's, there's quite, I think there's a sort of intended darkness and tragedy 
tragic notion um, in this work. Yes. I mean, there's the <laughs> disappearance of species and the you know, ruination of the environment and the imperiled animals, etc. I was here early and I came out and I sat. This is why I said to you in the, in the waiting room about to go against this exhibition was sort of like going against the voice of God because that video was so impressive <laughs> and your narration was so, you know, and I thought since I've been out here, I had the feeling of that should have been the medium. It wanted to be a kind of, um, 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 you know, William Kentridge sort of narrative thing with shadows and why did we need the paper things? And when you looked up close, you know, she she wasn't overly fussy. There are pencil lines of the cutting, you know, the cutting out, etc. I think my two big objections were the cliché postures of the animals. It was right out of the book. I mean, she made... Deborah Butterfield seemed iconoclastic, mm. you know. <laughs> Deborah, is that who I'm talking about? The horse, the the sculptor of the yes. horses, you know. That where, she, and she uses that known posture of the horse, you know, all the time. And as Stephanie pointed out, and maybe this is the opposite of what might be called the Gagosian problem, mm. those galleries in 56 Bogart are modest. Mm -hmm. And yes. so you have things going on with the person running the gallery and the light coming in from the door. But a black curtain, you know, a yeah. black tape, I mean, it's not... Yeah, it's not impossible, impossible. to fix. Yeah, right. yeah. and it, it, it's difficult. Uh, 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 Magdalena Wong seemed to have dealt with it more successfully. She's in a basement, so that's uh, okay. She's yes. that's right. You have to go through that that <laughs> other door. Mm. Um, this is an easy exhibition, probably to be snarky about, you know. Right. And so I'm trying to refrain from that. But there was a certain. I don't want to say you know, entertain cheesy entertainment quality about it that. I wished hadn't been there. Right. Okay. Yeah. I. 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 Perhaps made uh, too much allowance for the fact that it was Bogart Street, not Gagosian, uh, and and try to imagine. Yes. This. This. I could see this working differently in the pristine conditions of a museum-like setting, um, but um, I. I feel that. Uh, in a way, a key to the show was that small metal piece that you see just as you're coming in or leaving. Um, that is, I gather, more indicative of, or more, more representative of uh, what Klemperer does. Um, and that um, um, the, the cutouts then have that problematic status, the, the paper cutouts, of, of being... Um, almost sculptures, like the, the metal piece, and also just being vehicles for where the real sculpture or where the real work lies, which is in movement and shadow and, and silhouette. So, um, uh, but I, I felt actually that the, the, the poses of the animals were not uh, so cliched, and what I enjoyed was the the distortions achieved by the actual bends and curves of those um, paperworks into less animal. Um, you 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 
you often got distortions of one animal bleeding into another. So there was a, a kind of uh, um, universalism of, of, of animal limbs and forms and teeth and what have you. Um, well, two things she got, I mean, that it, that it, interesting, that's a bad word, but uh, the, the, the hint at skeletal structure, but they aren't skeletons, that right. was one, and then the inclusion all of a sudden of the rutting dogs, mm. I thought was, you know, right. it wasn't a glamour moment for the animals. Yeah. Yeah. Was I the only one that noticed that? No, no, I think we all... Uh, well, there are two dogs who are... Um, there might soon be a litter. <laughs> yes. Um, a little animal action going on. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, well, um, I'm not sure... As the sole voice on the panel, I, I can't do for Klempera what... Uh, Stephanie so admirably did for Grosser um, uh, of, of sustaining the argument because uh, of a degree of skepticism I have myself. But I, I did get pleasure from this show and I, I hope our audience did from visiting it. Just out of curiosity, how many of the audience saw three or more of the five exhibitions that we're looking at this evening? Very, very good. Well, part of the, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, one of the shows has now finished. I think the Wong is, is that one that was on till the 5th of March. Um, but uh, you can still go and see Klemperer and make up your own mind. And um, all the other shows have, have time to run yet. Uh, great. Well, we come to our, the last exhibition that we're considering this evening. Um, Haida Hatri, uh, Icons, Ashes. Sublime New Technique or morbid gimmick Peter I don't think it's a gimmick but it's a extreme example of reading the press release or being familiar with the artist etc because what you do have are kind of slightly grungy out of focus small weirdly framed because the boxes are so deep and there's this you know um and then only when you read this stuff do you get the thing about the taboos and the cremation issues, et cetera, et cetera, which is sociologically and anthropologically and all that sort of stuff interesting, but as pieces of something to look at, no. I was much more taken by the reliquary of books and, mm -hmm. and memorabilia than the, than the portraits. Right, right. Now, th this is a... This is a a theme of the evening, actually, this this discrepancy potentially, or between what you read and then what you see, and then what you see again once you've read it. Um, but here, I think I, I would take issue because um, when I first, well, I I saw the book before I saw the exhibition, so I did learn what was going on. But um, when I first saw reproductions of the the images, they seemed like tasteful and, and competent charcoal or graphite drawings of people. Um, when I learned what they were made of, there was an initial feeling of, of, of squeamishness. But um, on closer examination, particularly the diversity of textures and, and, and surfaces between them, um, I 
couldn't stop myself from feeling differently about them. Just as one would feel differently seeing um, a sculpture and learning that it's ivory. I mean, one, one knows that ivory is hard to carve, and so therefore, traditionally, one had that feeling about ivory. Now we know also that elephants are endangered species due to the fetishization of ivory. So even if it's from the Middle Ages, it's hard to look at an ivory without feeling what we feel when we look at ivory. Um, Ava, did you did you feel what 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 do you think the relationship was between the the um, symbolic value of the technique and the actual formal results? Um, I wasn't that shocked or moved by the fact that they were cremated remains of people. I thought the portraits were quite lovely in the sense that you know they you got a sense of the liveliness of the person i guess um in their life and what i really liked in the show though was the duplication of certain portraits that allowed you to compare the techniques or at least be aware that there was something going on here with authenticity and inauthenticity in a sense because it's like what can be more of the body than the ashes and yet there's this duplication going on where some people are represented multiple times so there's this kind of doubling of like, okay, here they are again, let's try again <laughs> to, get, to get the sort of, you know, the essence of the portrait. And I also really liked the, the reliquaries. Some of the, three of the um, men that were represented had objects from their lives, or in one case, James Purdy is an author and there were many of his books there adjacent to several portraits of him throughout his life. And it was just, it was really interesting to see their stuff with their portrait. And so that, I think, added a really nice dimension of sort of thinking the lifespan of a representation differently. Mm -hmm. You know, that it kind of goes into, you know, we, we often fetishize not even just the sort of body of the life, but like the imaging, right? I mean, a photograph light conditions falling on skin over a bone structure means so much in our society. And yet this other aspect of all their things is, is so important. We're all collectors of our, you know, sort of grooming our objects. And the domestic is such an important space for our, you know, life. And it was nice to see that too. So I thought that it, it kind of attenuated what could have been the gimmick of mm -hmm. just like portraits of people using their ashes into something that allowed me to reflect on other aspects of mortality and representation. Thank you, yes. Stephanie, did you find yourself more moved knowing that these portraits were made out of the ashes of their subjects? Um, not really. It does, didn't really shock me or, or um, changed my outlook on the project very much. Um, I like the reliquaries very much. I thought, you know, you're talking about icons, so there needs to be a little bit more of this trying to make it iconic, have context, all these personal objects, and with it, so it's a notion I, I like to see further. What I thought was interesting when I walked in, I didn't know anything about the project, is that you have all these same size um, grisaille paintings, and, you know, it's something that you usually would associate with kind of a sense of timelessness, but these works all seem so dated, and you look at them and you different periods dated. You look at them and you wonder why that is, but then later you realize that they're all based on photographs of these loved ones. So you have this lady with this 80s hairdo and, you know, kind of jewelry, and then you have this, you know, guy who's kind of, you know, in a 70s environment or from the 50s or from now, and that comes across even though she's stripping everything else 
mm-hmm. away. And that was an interesting aspect that kind of made it um, rooted in something tangible yes. that you wouldn't really think of at first. And, um, you know, I thought it was interesting that a lot of these works are on loan, obviously. These are not the artist's studio. She's not making them. These are all, um, except for a few from her own collection um, and personal collections of others. So she really brought it together. And these are basically commissioned projects. So I guess, Mm. you know, it's kind of to introduce the project and anybody can um, apply for a portrait of a loved one or a loved animal. And, you know, there's something really sweet about it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's, it's um, you know, the, the perennial question, uh, who is art for? And this, this, this exhibition solves it, doesn't it? It's, um, Solved? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it came down on kind of one side. I mean, it was closer to Egyptian Fayum portraits right. than it is to Chuck Close, say, and his, yes. the big images <laughs> of, of, of his friends. I want to throw in a thing about, since we talked about Katerina Grossa and Gagosian, mm. um, this exhibition was perfectly placed at Ubu. Right. I've gone a few times and they always have these tiny surrealistic Dada memorabilia kind of things mm. with the world's tightest spiral staircase. And it was just the whole thing. And I did read a little press yes. before I went mm. in there, so I knew, but the whole... Um, what do you call it? The, the 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 environment, the gallery, the portraits, the what mm. they're supposed to be. I did have one perverse thought, though, is that given technology, what if you did three D printing with cremation ashes? <laughs> you got a little figure, you know, in that way that yes. things are done in that machine out of those ashes. Well, if as I very much hope I outlive my dog, I'll bear that in mind. That's a, <laughs> that might be. The way to go. Um, uh, very rich. It's not perverse. I think it's just putting technology uh, together with the ancient impulses. So, any comments on Wendy Klemperer or Haida Hatchery from our audience? Um, they'd be very welcome. Do we still have our mic? Um, yes. Uh, is the mic around? Ah, um, oh, thank you. Uh, Hi. Um, A long time ago, I was curatorially involved in an exhibition that was a a sort of open invitational to artists. It was called Before and After, and uh, the artists were invited to bring two works, one before and one after becoming a sophisticated modern artist. And um, everybody seemed to have a lot of it was a kind of gleeful aspect to the show because, for one thing, the artists had to determine themselves at what point they became a sophisticated modern artist. Um, when I walked into Wendy Klemper's show, which is what I'm mostly talking about, but it might actually apply to both of these shows, um, I felt a little bit, I, I thought it was an exciting installation, and part of the excitement was being released from the burden of being a sophisticated viewer. I felt like I was excited by the... Uh, installation the way I would have been as a 10-year-old boy. And I wonder if it's maybe an interesting sociological exhibition, uh, I mean, interesting to look at it from a sociological standpoint, to consider the question of whether a successful, interesting show always has to be successful and, and interesting in terms of sophistication. And I think that this is a problematic position to be stating at these times because 
we have a government that is making popular giving populism a very bad name. So, um, but I think it's interesting sometimes to look at an exhibition like Wendy Klemper's from a sociological standpoint, and probably it applies to to both exhibitions actually. Right, or indeed any exhibition. Yes. Well, I liked Wendy's exhibition very much, and I found that there were a number of w different ways to kind of look at things there. I mean, on the one hand, it looked like the animals were flying and kind of dancing, and it was something very positive. And then the other way I felt about it was it was like ghosts, like there was something scary happening. And I think it was very powerful that those two things were made to put together. I just think that was a very strong way of putting some ideas out. And I really appreciated it, seeing it. And Cool. Thank you. More, more comments? No, I think that's a great note upon which to end because it's a positive, it's the audience striking back. It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, populism at its best is when the <laughs> panel of four experts do not see it the way uh, that member of the audience is not just a member of the audience. It's Ruth Hardinger, a distinguished artist whose work we admired at Volta this weekend and can continue to admire at 56 Bogart Street, just next door to Wendy Klemperer's at Schweitzer and David Gallery. Well, thank you very much. This has been our German evening. I sh we should have invited the German ambassador this evening because we have... <laughs> Peter Plagans is of German extraction. Stephanie Booman is the real McCoy. And we managed to uh, review the works of uh, uh, Hatchie, uh, Bart, who are now both US-based but German-born, and Katharina Grosser. And in her ancestry, no doubt, Wendy Klemperer can trace some, something from Central Europe. So... <laughs> Come back, who knows what the theme will be next time. Um, but do join us with guests Ara Margian, uh, Alexi Worth, and Sarah Douglas on April 4th. Look forward to it, and don't forget, go for your drink. Join us for a drink at the Gallery at One Grand Army Plaza, just over the Eastern Parkway um, at the number one Grand Army Plaza. Thank you.